Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, let's get right to it tonight. Turn with me in Ephesians chapter 6. We're teaching a series on the prayers of the church, and we're going through different kinds of prayer. And, and uh, tonight I want to share with you some things that, uh, um, well, let's read the text scripture, and then I'll, I'll set it up for you. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Paul is speaking by the Holy Ghost, and he says, Praying always, the, the, the preceding verses were about the uh, armor of God, put on the armor of God. You need to be armed for prayer, in other words. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Now, we've uh, uh, remarked numerous times that other translations say praying with all kinds of prayer, all manner of prayer. But if you didn't have any other translations, you'd recognize that from just the King James where he says praying with all prayer. If all prayer was the same, he wouldn't talk about all prayer. He'd just say praying and making supplication. So he's talking about different kinds of prayer. And we've gone through a couple of those. We'll go through more as we go. But tonight I want to talk to you about supplication. Can I ask you a question? Does anybody know what supplication is? The Bible has a lot to say about it. Do we know what it is? It's different from prayer apparently. Or at least it's different from all kinds. Different kinds of prayer. Because Paul puts it in his own category. And if he's speaking by the Holy Ghost, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost considers it to be a different category. Well, I've got to share with you a little bit about my experience on this. This is something that used to bug me like crazy. Because uh, I'd get around different ministers and different people that uh, that were used of God, and, and I'd hear them talk about supplication, and they'd always talk about it like everybody knew what it was. And I didn't. And I knew that because I didn't, I was missing out on some aspect of prayer that the Holy Ghost intended that God intended for us to utilize and so I'd get around these people and and uh, and I'd, I'd hear them make statements and and they were always lofty statements always sound real spirit real spiritually deep you know and so I'd get around them and I'd, I'd uh, want to find out more because I knew I didn't know what it was and so I figured well they sound like they know what it is so let me find out from them and over over a period of time I found out they didn't know any more than I did now in the 80s probably the the uh, latter part of the 80s, I guess, there was somebody, the well-respected minister, that came out with a book. It wasn't a very big book, but it was a, a paperback book that was published, and the title of it was Supplication. So I thought, okay, now I can get my answer. I read that book five times, and there was nothing in it. I kept thinking, every time I'd go through it, I kept thinking, well, there must be something that's there that I'm just not missing, because why would God have somebody write a book? I realized right then, a lot of people write books, not because they have something to say, but just because they want to write a book. So I was left with an unhappy dilemma, and that is, I don't know any more about this than I did starting. What is supplication? It's got to be important because the Holy Ghost talks about it. What is supplication? Well, let's go back to the original meaning of the words, the Greek meaning of the words. The word supplication here in uh, uh, chapter 6, verse 18 of Ephesians means a petition, a prayer request, or a supplication. Okay, if you stop right there, if it means a petition, it's got to mean something more than that. It's got to go further than that because petitions are about the prayer of faith. You remember in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, I believe it is. We talked about that sometime uh, several weeks ago at some length where it says, this is the confidence that we have in him. That if we ask anything according to his will, that means according to his word, then he hears us. And the next verse says, and if we know that he hears us then we know that we have the petitions that we've desired of him. Well, that's the prayer of faith. We know the prayer of faith is the prayer to receive something from God. It's the prayer that changes things. Now here, this word supplication means to make petition. So is it saying that the prayer of faith is a different kind of, uh, a different category of prayer altogether? 
Well, if so, then why is it identified as the prayer of faith? Why didn't they just call it supplication? Why didn't Jesus said, say in Mark chapter 11, when the disciples drew to his attention the fig tree that he cursed the day before, and now it's withered, dried up from the roots. Why didn't he say supplicate? Instead of have faith in God, why didn't he say you've got to learn to make supplication? It's got to be something more than that. Well, if you look for the root word that the word supplicate comes from, or supplication comes from, it means this. It means to beg as binding oneself, such as a petition, beseech, pray, to make request. Now, if you look at the, uh, if you look through a concordance, you can find out that there's a lot of times that this word or these words, these two words, both the root word and the, uh, the other word that supplication is uh, taken from or translated from, you'll find that, uh, that these words are translated many different things. And the translators must not have known any more about it than we do. Because they translate it sometimes pray, prayer, prayed. They translate it sometimes to beseech or to, be, or to, uh, to have besought. I'm not sure how the, 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 the wording would be, but to be, uh, the, the past tense of beseech. It's, uh, it's translated supplication in a few, a few places, not a whole lot, but a few places it's translated that. But one time it's even, even translated when. Well, if you take all the things that it's translated, all the different words that it's translated into, I didn't, that didn't help me any more then than it did before. I, was, I spent several years just trying to figure out what in the world is supplication. And folks, I've got to tell you, I wish I had more books and research material to work from. I'm not satisfied with what I've seen anybody say about it. I can poke holes in every preacher's preach, preaching on supplication, and there's not much out there. So I was left with an unhappy dilemma, as I said. What do we do to identify what supplication is? It's got to be important. So how do we find out? Well, let's look at some places where this word is used and see if we can see a pattern. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 1. You're right there in, uh, in Ephesians. Just turn a page over. Notice here in, uh, well, let's just start in verse 1 of chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, the servants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. That means the church leaders. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to the individual. He's talking to the church. But the fact that he's writing this to the church tells us he's writing to believers. So we should expect that they're at least saved, probably saved and spirit-filled from some things that he says later on. Most of them would be at least. So notice what he says to believers, saints. Verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Always in every prayer. This word prayer is the word supplication. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making request. Here's the word supplication again. It's used twice in this verse. Making, all, making request or making supplication with joy. So notice what he says. He says, every time I think about you, I make supplication for you. And that supplication is a request. There's the petition part. So supplication has to do with making a request of God. But he's saying, I do this every time I think about you. Now, what is he thinking about or what is he praying and so forth? Notice in um, verse 9. Skip down with me to verse 9. We'll skip over some of the stuff just for the sake of time. But verse 9, he tells what he prays. He said, and this I pray. Now, he just said in verse 3 and 4 that he remembers them all the time. And he's all the time praying for them, making requests for them of God when he prays. Well, what does he pray? Verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. Now, can I ask you a question? Why would you have to pray about that? These people are saved. Aren't we supposed to be growing in love and, and, and growing in wisdom? 
And wouldn't the growth of wisdom, growth and development of wisdom, cause us to have greater judgment as far as the things of God are concerned and as far as spiritual things are concerned? What do you have to pray for that? Isn't that between the individual and God? He goes on in verse 10. That you may approve. Here's why he wants them to abound in love and have good judgment. That you may approve those things which are excellent. That you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ and the glory and the praise of God. Now may I summarize this for you? Let me make a summarization here and you decide for yourself if this is accurate. Is he not praying that they would grow spiritually so that God would use them in developing good fruit in their lives? Isn't that what he means? I mean, I know it's not flowery like the King James English is, but isn't that what he's talking about? I'm praying for you. I'm making supplication for you that you grow in love. I'm making supplication for you that you grow or develop in wisdom so that you can approve those things that are excellent. Not choose between good and bad, but so that you could live your life in an excellent manner according to what God's plan and purpose for our lives would be. Well, what is God's plan and purpose? What would be the excellent way to live? Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. In other words, living in a righteous manner. He didn't say, I'm praying that you would become righteous. He says, I'm praying, making supplication for you. Here's a petition that I'm bringing before the Father all the time, over and over and over again. This is not a pray one time prayer. He says, I pray this for you all the time so that you would live your life in a righteous manner. Now, why would Paul or anybody else have to pray for Christians to live their lives righteously? Because not all righteous individuals, people that have been saved, who have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, live that way, do they? Let's look at another example. Look with me over to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we'll start in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son. Now, remember, Timothy was one of the ones that Paul said, Timothy and I are right, and both of us are praying for you Philippians. Now, Paul's going to talk about praying for Timothy. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, who I serve from my forefathers with pure conscience, that without ceasing I have remembrance for you of thee in my supplications night and day. Greatly desiring to see thee, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy. Now notice he goes on and says in verse 6, it tells us what some of uh, at least what he might be praying about. He says, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but a power and of love and of a sound mind. So Timothy must be shy or timid about using the gift that God has already placed in him. But if he's already got the gift, why does Paul have to pray? See, folks, so many people, and, and it's easy to fall into this trap. So many people have the idea that because God is all-powerful, and he is. And because God is sovereign, and he is But most people that use the word sovereign don't know what the Bible means when it speaks of sovereignty. Most people think that when God wants something, if it's the will and the plan and the purpose of God, then bless God, it's just going to happen whether or no. It's going to happen no matter what obstacles there are. It's going to happen no matter what resistance there is. It's going to happen whether people want it to or not. It's going to happen because bless God, it's the will of God. 
But you're going to see a pattern here. You're going to see that Paul prays again and again and again for people, making supplication for them that God's plan would be realized in their lives. Now, I would submit something to you, and I could take you through almost every example, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do it. But let's just use a principle and a pattern. The Bible says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Right? If we see that Paul is praying and using the word, and and specifically using the word supplication for the Philippians, that they would grow in the things of God. If he's praying, making supplication for Timothy, who's a minister, called to the ministry, has a gift or an anointing, a calling of God upon his life, because Paul laid hands on him. So Paul's going to know, if, if anybody else knows, at least Paul would know what this guy's got. He's going to know why God had him lay hands on him, what for, and what is what is supposed to be used for, how it should be utilized, right? If he's praying that Timothy would step into or walk in the fullness of God's plan for his ministry, then what would the other prayers for the churches be too? In Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul says, I make mention of you in my prayers that God would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that, he would, uh, that you would know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers? In chapter 3, in verse 16, where he says, I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that you would be strengthened with might by the Holy Spirit in your inner man. That Christ would dwell in your heart by faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love, that's what he's praying for the Philippians, would be able to comprehend with all the saints what's the length and depth and breadth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Well, what would those prayers be? If Paul is praying the same kind of prayer, not the same words, but if he's praying the same uh, result for the Philippians, what would his prayer for the Ephesians be, if not supplication? Now, the word's not used. Another word is used for prayer in those verses. But what would it be if it's not supplication? Are you following me? Supplication seems to have something to do with attaching yourself. And Paul says, I cease not to make mention for you. In other words, he's saying, I pray this for you over and over and over again. He said about all the churches, he said the one thing that he dealt with, the greatest burden of his life in his ministry that he dealt with every day was the care of the churches. Well, what is the care of the churches? His desire to see them grow up in the things of God. His desire that they'd stay strong. His desire that they would learn, that they would grow, that their eyes would be open to who they are in Christ and therefore walk in it, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, as he said to the Philippians. Can you see it? It's a pattern all through the scriptures. Every time Paul is praying for the church, praying that they would be established in the things of God, every time he prays, he's making supplication. If this pattern holds true, and why wouldn't it? Why would God have him make supplication for Timothy and not make supplication for other believers. Why would he make supplication for the church at Philippi if he's not making supplication for the church at Ephesus, the church at Rome, the church at Colossae, and others? You see where I'm coming from on this? So what do we see? Let's go back to the definitions. The definition of the word supplication means a petition. So it's got to be something that you pray in faith. It's not the prayer of faith, but it's something you pray in faith according to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. Otherwise, you can't pray the prayer of petition because faith begins where the will of God is known. You can't make a petition if you don't know you're making it according to the will of God. And there's only one way you find the will of God, and that's through the word. So if it's a petition, it has to be based on the word. It has to be a faith-filled prayer. 
But it's not the prayer of faith. The root word? To beg as in binding oneself. Binding oneself in what? Nowhere do you see that he makes supplication for unbelievers. Although he does say, when he writes to the Romans, he does say, my heart's desire and my prayer for Israel is that they would be saved. That's the word supplication. Now, why would he make a a, a supplication, or why would he use the word supplication regarding Israel who is unsaved? Because they have a covenant with God. Or let's say it this way. They have a plan. God has a plan for uh, the people. He has a plan for the children of Abraham. Of course, that plan is Jesus. But even after the church is is, uh, received up into heaven through the rapture, God still has a plan for Israel to bring them into the kingdom of God. So we can't say that they're saved because he's making supplication that they would be saved. But what do they have that's unlike any other Gentiles or any of the, uh, the heathen nations of the world? What is the difference between Israel and the heathen nations of the world? The difference is God has a plan for their life. In other words, they have rights that no other nation has. They have a right to expect God's deliverance. Now, what is that deliverance going to be? Ultimately, Jesus. But they do have rights. The unsaved nations of the world, other nations of the world, everybody except Israel has no rights before God. Israel does. It's not the same as being saved. It's not the same as what we have as believers because we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. But they do have rights. Therefore, if that pattern holds true, then to bind oneself, to beg or to bind oneself in the sense of binding oneself or making petition has to be according to rights that we have as believers here on the earth. Turn with me over to Acts chapter 4. Let me show you an example. Let's see supplication in action. See if we can learn something from it this way. Acts chapter 4, we'll start reading in verse uh, 18. This is when uh, uh, Peter and John are brought before the council after the guys healed at the beautiful gate of the temple. And it says in verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, verse 19, and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you be the judge. In other words, he's blowing them off, saying, we're going to obey God. You decide what you want to about that. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of all the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done, the healing of the crippled man in chapter 3. And being let go, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped verse 22. For the man was above 40 years old on whom this miracle of the healing was showed. Now, verse 23, notice this. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, now this is the whole company. We don't know how many there are, but it sounds like a big group. A sizable group. I don't mean to say hundreds or thousands or anything like that, but it's it's some kind of group. And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they had heard that, they, meaning the whole group, lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Who, by the mouth of thy servant David, has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? In other words, we realize that you've already told us, Father, that this is what unsaved people are going to do against us. Just what the council did. 
The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against the holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. I got a couple of questions. Why would they have to pray that God would do what he already said he would do if they obeyed him? Hasn't Jesus already said these signs will follow them to believe in my name? Didn't he already tell them go into all the world to make disciples? Doesn't the Bible tell us that the Lord worked with them? Well, not really with them, but worked with and confirming the word with signs following. Sure. So why are they praying this? If this is the will of God anyway, which we know it is, and remember the prayer of petition has to be prayed, making a petition uh, to God, a request unto God has to be based on his will. So you're only going to know his will by finding out from his word. So they're bringing his will back to him. But why would they have to? Clearly, this is not the prayer of faith. They're not ending by saying, I believe I receive anything. So what are they doing? And I've got a second question for you. I'll let you chew on that one for a little bit. Let me ask you another question. Who said this? Doesn't it say they lifted up their voice? They lifted up their voice. That would be like all of us getting together and saying, okay, we're going to pray. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray for brother so-and-so, so let's pray. How in the world would God hear what's recorded from everybody praying? Is somebody reading a script and, and having people repeat after them? I want you to realize something, folks. Many times, not all the time, but many times where the Bible tells us about people's prayer when it's a a group of people praying, it's God saying, here's what I heard them pray. This is what the Holy Ghost is telling us. Here's what the Holy Ghost heard them pray. Now, how in the world could he have heard them pray if they're all praying different things? I'm assuming they're praying in the Spirit. Now, if, if they means Peter, he's leading in prayer. And we think a lot about that. We think about people leading in prayer. Most churches have somebody that'll lead in prayer and everybody else just stays quiet while they talk. If that's the case, then why would the Bible say they lifted up their voice to God with one accord? Do you see the point I'm making? They're all praying. And here's what the Holy Ghost hears them pray. So they must be praying in the spirit. And doesn't the Bible say in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, praying with all prayer, all kinds of prayer, and supplication in the Spirit? Now, that word does not just mean in tongues. So that phrase, in the Spirit, does not just mean in tongues. It means motivated by the Holy Spirit. But sometimes the Holy Spirit motivates you to pray in tongues. I think that's what's happening here. Now, what's the end result? Notice verse 31. And when they had prayed, this word prayed is the word supplication. When they had made supplication, what are they doing? They're binding themselves to God based on a right or a promise that he's made to them. What promise has he made? That if we'll speak your word, you'll show forth with signs following. That's exactly what they've done. Now, could they not have just said, well, there's nothing to pray about here. Bless the Lord. Jesus said, if we'll go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, 
These signs will follow us. So we just believe that. We'll just stand on the word. We expect signs to follow and that'll, that'll be it. If that's all they had done, they would have missed out on a wonderful experience in prayer. Maybe a lot of results too. See, folks, when it comes to you praying about your own needs, there's no problem with saying, I believe I receive, and that's it. I'm through praying. Thank you, Father, that it's done. But when it comes to God's plan for your life being realized, there are some things that you need to make supplication about after you stand in faith. And when they had prayed, made supplication, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and spake the word of God with boldness. This is exactly the same thing that Jesus talks about in Luke chapter 22, verses 31, 32, somewhere around there, where he says of Peter, as before he goes to the cross, it's the night that he was betrayed, he said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed, made supplication for you, that your faith fail not. Well, now, Jesus is the son of God. Why didn't he just decree it? Why didn't he just say, Peter, you're going to be strong? Well, that'll be a miracle that everybody will realize. Why not? He's the son of God. That's how most people think God works. If God says that that's the end of it, let me show you another example. Look over with me to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Let's start reading in verse 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Notice Jesus' threefold ministry, preaching, teaching, and healing. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Why does he have compassion on them? Because he sees they need something they don't have. He sees that he's not enough to get the job done. And he wants them to have what God sent him here to the earth to provide, right? I mean, otherwise, was he, was he having compassion when they're fainting? So he says to the disciples, verse 37, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Verse 38, pray, make supplication. Make supplication, therefore, that the Lord, under the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, aren't the laborers ministry gifts? Isn't that what he's talking about? Isn't he talking about laborers, meaning people that can share Jesus with other people? Doesn't God want that? Isn't God the one that calls people, not man? So if God's the one that initiates it, the call, I mean, for somebody to go and minister unto others and preach the gospel to other people. If God's the one that initiates that and he wants to do it already, why is he telling the disciples that they need to make supplication about it? You see where we missed it, folks? There are things that God wills. There are things that God intends that cannot be accomplished if they're not prayed through or prayed out. Do you see it? Let me show you another couple. Look with me over to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Let's start in verse 9. Well, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. 
That's a pretty good thing to have said about you, isn't it? For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. Making request. The phrase making request is the word supplication. So here's what I'm doing. I'm praying. I'm making supplication. I'm asking God for something. Making request. If by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. Why would Paul have to pray that he could go see them? It's either the will of God or it's not. What is he praying about it for? Look with me over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Let's start reading in verse... Uh, let's start in verse 8. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. In other words, Paul said, that's what makes me happy. That's what I'm seeking. For you to stand fast in the Lord. For what thanks can we render to God again for you? For all the joy wherewith we joy for your sakes before our God. That's King James English for saying... We're always looking for something we can thank God about concerning you because we have great joy in the way that you're living your lives. Night and day, here's what Paul's saying about himself. Night and day praying, here's the word making supplication. Night and day supplicating exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Paul is saying very simply, It'll be good for you for me to come because I can strengthen you. I know that I can make up the difference in where some of you are weak or weaker than you should be. I can make up the difference if I can just get to you. So I'm praying night and day to be able to come back to you. Do you see what Paul was talking about when he he spoke about the thing that came upon him daily, the burden that came upon him daily, the care of all the churches? Paul was trying the best he could to get to everybody that he needed to get to and he couldn't get to everybody. And he was concerned. What are these people going to be or what's going to happen to them while I'm not there? Because the more fame that Paul got, the more people tried to do things to him, threw him in prison, persecuted him and so forth. The power of God is seen. Christianity is spread. And as a result, some of the churches that he's not with anymore were enduring persecution because of Paul. So he's praying for these people. He's praying that they'd be strengthened. He's praying that they would find out who they are in Christ so that they could stand strong even though I'm not there. But I know I need to be there for you. I know how tough it is to stand alone. Paul stood alone most of his ministry. So he says, I understand. And that's why I want to get there. But again, we're back to the original question. It's either the will of God or it's not. Why is Paul praying? Folks, here's what supplication is. Supplication is making petition based on a right for a believer, either yourself or for somebody else that's saved, based on the rights and the privileges or the plan of God for your life that must be prayed through. Let me show you an example of it. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. I'm trying to get through these scriptures so that I can share some things with you. Because I know the scriptures themselves are not enough. I'm going to need to connect some of these dots. Show you a couple of examples. Hebrews chapter 5. Um, better start in verse 5. So also Christ glorified himself. 
glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. In other words, he's saying God made him a high priest. Jesus didn't try to do it on his own. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what is he talking about? He's talking about God's plan for Jesus' place in ministry. As our great high priest, not here on the earth, but through his resurrection. Now in that context, notice what it says in verse 7. Who's talking about Jesus in the days of his flesh? While he was here on the earth, here's what Jesus did. When he had offered up prayers and supplications. Now the first word prayers is the word supplication. The second word, supplication, is never used again in the New Testament. So we can't come to an understanding of what that is. But it does tell us enough about him making supplication. Who in the days of his flesh, Jesus made supplications with strong crying and tears. Unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Now let me ask you a question. When was that? Wasn't that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? That's the only time we have record of it. We don't know of any other time that Jesus even cried except before Lazarus' tomb when he was moved with compassion. Here it tells us something that we should uh, understand or that the author, I believe Paul, uh, expects us to understand. That has to be the Garden of Gethsemane experience. Now stop for a minute. We've already talked about the Garden of Gethsemane experience. That was the prayer of consecration where Jesus said, if it be possible... He's not praying to get anything. He's asking God about his plan. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, right? The Bible says he prayed three times. But if you look at the scriptures, if you look at what the gospels tell us about that, it tells us Jesus went a a little bit away from the disciples and prayed and came back and found them asleep and said, couldn't you pray with me for an hour? So he's prayed for an hour. It says that he went back again and prayed the same thing the second time, indicating another hour. Came back, found him asleep, went back the third time, and it says he prayed the same thing the third time. Now, we don't know for sure, for absolute certainty, that he prayed an hour both the second and the third times, but we know that he prayed an hour the first time. But can I ask you a question? How long does it take to pray, not my will, but your will be done? You can pray what the Bible tells us Jesus said, If it be possible, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. What did that take? Ten seconds? It says he prayed that three times. But if he's been praying over an hour the first time and a lengthy time over the the second two, the last two times, he could have prayed up to three hours just saying, Father, if it be your will. He can't be saying just that. What else is he saying? What else is he praying about? He's making supplication. According to Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7, Jesus is making supplication out there. He's not just praying the prayer of consecration. He's making supplication according to God's plan and purpose for his life and his ministry. According to God's plan and purpose for resurrection, he's making supplication. Why in the world would Jesus have to make supplication when it is God's plan from the foundations of the earth for Jesus to be slain and raised from the dead? If there's anything that would seem to me to be a done deal, that's got to be it. Yet the Bible tells us that Jesus is making supplication. He's praying. He's binding himself to the Father. Praying according to his rights concerning God's plan for him. Now, if it was important enough for Jesus to do on something as 
universe shattering as the resurrection. I mean, that is the life changer. If it's important enough for Jesus to make supplication so that the plan and the purpose of God come to pass in his life, how important would it be for you and me for God's plan to come forth in ours? You see what we've done? We've taken the attitude that, well, if God said so, then that's, just, that's it. That's all there is to it. That's, that's the, the end of it. And we've missed out on a great, great benefit. I think, now I'm going to give you my opinion on some things. You judge it for yourself. I think that what some of the old-timer, old-time Pentecostals talked about praying through is making supplication. Brother Hagin talked about a prayer group that he had in, in one of the churches that he pastored. Small group, just a group of four or five women, I think he said. Sister Sylvia was the, kind of the leader of the group, or, or the lead prayer of the group, little red-headed lady. He said, don't turn in a prayer request to that group if you don't want the answer. He said, they'd pray heaven and earth together. Why? Because they knew how to make supplication. They're making prayer, they're making petition based on the requests of the saints. They're binding themselves together based on God's will, based on his word, based on the promises of God's word for the reality of those blessings to come to pass on the behalf of the believers. He, Brother Hagin said somebody would find out this, that uh, there would be a sick person in his church. They'd get the information of those prayer groups, uh, that, that one prayer group, and those ladies would start praying. If they were praying together, they could. Or if they, if they could pray together, they would. If not, they'd pray together at their house. Brother Hagin said, I rarely ever had to pray for the sick. Why? Because people are praying for, they're binding themselves to the Father based on the promise of healing for other people in the church. Can you see it? Now turn with me over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. I know I'm out of time, but I need to, can I go a little bit over on this one? I'll give it back to you next week. I need to. But I just don't think this is something we need to leave half said, if you understand what I mean. Philippians chapter 4. Here's a verse of scripture we talk about a lot when we talk about not being anxious or being worry-free and so forth. But notice how it says it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry or fret about anything. But, here's the replacement for worry, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Here's what the old-timers said that they did. The old-timers said that they would pray They'd take the word of God to prayer and they would pray. Maybe it'd be for healing. Maybe it'd be for something that they were looking for direction for God to give them in their life or whatever the case is, they would pray. But they wouldn't just claim something by faith. And that's why the old-time Pentecostals had a problem with the faith message. Because some of the old-time Pentecostals said, well, wait, we don't just claim something by faith. We don't just say the word says it, so that's it. We pray the word and keep praying until we have the assurance of the answer. Who's right? I think we both are. There are some things you claim by faith and you say, bless God, that's it. The word says so and that's it. But when it comes to the will of God being accomplished in your life, there's some things you need to pray a little bit further on. Now, folks, I got to tell you, I learned some of these things by praying, not by reading a book. Because I can look at some things. Let me give you an example. The Lord spoke to me about, uh, what, 20 years ago, maybe 22 years ago, about TV. When he spoke to me about TV, and, and I say speak to uh, people, think words. It wasn't words. It was just an inside knowing. Just uh, I was praying, minding my own business. 
praying about something else regarding the church. We had, we didn't have enough people to buy a TV set. Much less go on TV. But all of a sudden, I just knew the only way we're going to reach this area, as big as it is and as diverse as it is and as distracted as people are, is TV. It's going to be the greatest outreach of our ministry whenever that happens. We couldn't have bought anything. We didn't have enough money to do anything. And I knew for a fact God's not telling me to start something today. And so I I took it and I said, well, okay, Lord, if that's you, it's your problem. I'm not going to try to raise any money for it. I'm not going to try to make it happen. I don't want to be a TV preacher. I don't like TV preachers for the most part. Don't want to be grouped up with them. Everybody thinks people are on TV for money. That's why I'll never say a thing about a dime being given to our church on TV. And that was it. That was all there was to it. But it wouldn't go away. Every time I'd go to prayer, it'd be right there. Now, it wouldn't be that I'd think about it during the week. I'd get busy doing other things, and, 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 and it wouldn't be on my mind. But every time I'd go back to prayer, there it would be. And I prayed about that off and on for 20 years. It wasn't the biggest thing on my heart. It wasn't the only thing on my heart. But, man, there would be some times where it would come, and I knew that when I was praying in tongues, I'm praying about TV. And I didn't, in, in, in many cases, I didn't even want it. In some, time, some of those instances, I know I'm praying from my heart about TV and my head is fighting it all the way, saying, nope, 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 don't want it, it costs too much, don't want to do it, don't care. Nope, 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 and there it'd be again next time I'd go to prayer. Looking back at it now, one night, standing right over there, we're worshiping God on a Sunday night, small handful of people here, we're just singing praises to God, all of a sudden I knew, now it's time. Now it's time to go on TV. We never took an offering for it. We never did a thing. We, I just told the people, look, the Lord spoke to me. He said, it's time. He dealt with me about this 20-something years ago, maybe 20 years ago, whatever it was at that point in time. He dealt with me about it, and I've been praying about it through the, through the years. And, folks, I don't care if it works or not. I don't want to be on TV. It's not my idea. Here we go. We've never taken an offering for TV. We've taken an offering for some equipment that we had to upgrade. But we've never taken an offering for TV. We've never put any pressure on anybody. And I have no doubt in my mind that we wouldn't be working the way that it was, that it, that it is now. We wouldn't be having the success with it that we are. And we're hearing from people all over the world off the TV. Some people are seeing us on TV that you don't even get our broadcast. And the TV has brought people to the website. The website's going all over the world and stuff like that. We've got all kinds of results and things that we never say anything about. And I have no doubt, but it's because that I prayed numerous times in the Spirit, by the direction of the Holy Ghost, made supplication for what was the will of God to be accomplished anyway. My point is very simply this. You can't just say it's God's will, so that's it. You've got to pray out God's will. Why? Because supplication, listen to me real carefully. I don't want anybody to misunderstand what I'm saying supplication breaks through the devil's resistance for the plan of God being accomplished in your life. Some people will never be healed if somebody doesn't make supplication for them because they will never overcome through their own faith the resistance of the enemy. You know how the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. Supplication is the way a believer gets through that resistance. Now, how does that resistance take place? Turn with me over to, to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 32. I'll, uh, I'll try to, to close with this. But let me make some comments while you're turning. 
How does the devil try to keep God's plan from coming to pass in your life? Well, there's a thousand and one ways that he tries. How is he going to accomplish it? Well, with some people, they get too distracted either through attacks or through physical earthly things. They get distracted by earthly things so that they never come to the realization of who they are in Christ. Well, folks, I'm not any more in Christ than you are, and we're not any more in Christ than the the worst backsliding Christian. Everybody is the same when it comes to what we have in Christ by being in him. Now, we may have different calls upon us. There may be different plans that God has for our lives, but nobody's got a lock on who we are in Christ. Nobody's got a lock on, on the, the power of the Holy Ghost in them as believers, not according to the, to the, the ministry office or, or place that God has for you that he's called you to, but according to who we are as believers. Then why do some Christians wind up stronger than other Christians? Why are some Christians stronger in the word than other Christians? Some people just cop out and say, well, I guess God just did something special with them. Some people, multitudes of people would come up to Brother Hagin and say, well, Brother Hagin, I just don't have the faith you do. And they said it like as a put down. And he'd laugh and he'd say, well, you could if you get in the word. Because everybody can have it. Everybody can grow. You can grow to the fullness of your measure. God wouldn't give me more of something than he gives you or else he'd be a respecter of persons. So what makes the difference? The difference is made by the, the determination that the individual has to push through the devil's influences. That's what supplication does. Supplication pushes through the devil's influence so that the plan of God is realized in your life. Genesis chapter 32. Here's a a passage of scripture that I want to show you where supplication is being made. Here's an Old Testament example, a type and a shadow. Here's an Old Testament example of supplication and how it works and why. Genesis chapter 32. Let me catch you up on the story. You remember Jacob and Esau, they're twins. Esau comes out first, comes out of the womb first, so he has the birthright of the firstborn. He sells that birthright to his twin brother, little brother by a few minutes, Jacob, for a pot of stew. When he finds out that he's been tricked and what it really means, he wants to kill his brother, so his brother runs. His brother flees the land. He gets away from everybody. He goes to his uncle, and his uncle cheats him for so long, you know, ever however many years, 14 years. He cheats him every way that he can, but God is on Jacob's side because of the birthright, because it meant something to Jacob and didn't mean anything to Esau. God had respect unto Esau. And so he honored him with Abraham's blessing. So now Jacob comes back. He's coming back home, and man, he is loaded down with stuff. Now, he's had some encounters or experiences with God. When he first left and was running from his brother, his brother said he'd kill him. When he's first running from Esau, Jacob lays down one night, and you remember the story about how he has a dream, and he sees heaven open, and there's a ladder that's going up into heaven, and the angels are going up and coming down. And when he wakes up, he says, man, this is the house of God, and I didn't realize it. So he made an altar there. And he said to God, he said, if you will bring me back with plenty, if you will bring me back with abundance, I'll give you a tenth of everything that I have. wonder where he learned that. Learned that from his grandpa, Abraham, who tithed the Melchizedek. Isaac did the same thing, followed his dad's example, and he learned from them. So he makes that commitment to God. He comes back to another place, and the Lord speaks to him. Angels meet him on the way back. And he realizes, man, this is the place of God. God even tells him, go back to where you made that altar. He called it Bethel. Means house of God. Go back to that altar and dwell there. I'll tell you what to do. That's when the angels come to him. 
apparently they looked like men because he talked to them and they told him what to do and so forth. Now, Jacob is planning the next day to go out and meet his brother. And he doesn't know if his brother still wants to kill him or not. So he gives instruction, divide my stuff in, a, in big groups. Take half of it and, and go first and, and go out in front. And if you meet my brother Esau and he says, what is this? He says, this is Jacob's gift to you. We'll bribe him. After that, he divided what was left into other parts. And then it says, that night he had another experience with God. Have you found Genesis 32? Let's start reading in verse... Wait a minute, let me... I've got to get my iPad going here on something else so I can show you. Uh, let's start reading in Genesis chapter 32 in verse 22. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over all and sent over that he had. In other words, here's the last group of stuff that he's sending in front of him. And Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let you go. In other words, the angel is saying, let me go for the day breaks. It's almost dawn. I don't know, angels. I don't think it's a vampire thing. But anyway, he said, dawn's coming. And Jacob said, I will not let you go except you bless me. And he said unto him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be no more called Jacob. But Israel, for as a prince has thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. Now let me ask you a question. What do we know about this story? Well, I grew up hearing this story was, went like this. Jacob wrestled with the angel. There were pictures there showing the angel wings and, and all this kind of stuff. And Jacob is wrestling with the angel. And the angel reaches out and touches Jacob's hip, and his hip's out of joint. So I, I, I need to read a little bit further. Um, yeah, let's skip down to verse 31. And he passed over Penuel. As, the sun, as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted or limped upon his thigh. Therefore the children of Israel eat not of the sinew which shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh and the sinew that shrank. So here's what I was taught about this story. I was taught that Jacob wrestled with an angel, and the angel, you know, I don't know, was having trouble or something or another. So he threw Jacob's hip out of joint, and Jacob was crippled for the rest of his life. Have you heard something similar about that? Says who? Let me read this to you from another couple of translations. One translation says, But when the man saw that he was not able to overcome Jacob, he gave him a blow in the hollow part of his leg so that his leg was damaged. Here's what the Septuagint said. And he saw that he prevailed not. Here's the angel. He saw that he prevailed not against Jacob. And he touched the broad part of his thigh. And the broad part of Jacob's thigh was benumbed in his wrestling with him. Now, if you want to know what, what damage was done to Jacob, God gave you the answer. He said the Israelites won't eat the part that was damaged unto this day. Well, then all you got to do is look up in the Jews' dietary laws and find out what will they not eat. Now, think about this. They won't eat a hip bone like anybody was going to anyway. They won't eat a hip joint like that's really tasty. You look up and find out in the Jewish dietary laws, they won't eat the tendon 
of the thigh. Here's what this is saying. This is saying the angel wrestled with Jacob and touched the inner part of his thigh, the hollow part of his thigh, and he benumbed it. In other words, you ever hit your, hit your funny bone on something hard? That's something being benumbed. You ever pulled a muscle? That's something being benumbed. And it does say the next day Jacob limped. Any of you ever pulled a muscle and limped the next day? Does that mean you're crippled for life? Where do we get this stuff? Where does the church get this stuff? It's showing us very simply this. There is a physical effort that is necessary if you're going to make supplication so that you receive the blessing that God has planned for your life to begin with. It's not going to fall on you, as Brother Hagin used to say, like ripe cherries off a tree. This Christian life is not a life floating down through on flowery beds of ease, as he said. It's going to take some effort. Supplication takes effort. It takes physical exercise, but don't get the wrong idea. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not the physical exertion in itself. It's saying you're going to have to be willing to give up of your flesh to pray. To pray the plan of God through in your life. Think about what happened. Jacob already had a blessing from God. He had the blessing of Abraham on him. But now he gets something more. God's already said twice in Jacob's life, I will bless you. The blessing of your father Abraham, literally grandfather. But the blessing of your father Abraham is yours. You have the firstborn birthright, the double portion, which is what it was. God has said that to him twice throughout his life since he's left, since he bought it off of Esau and left his father's land. So then why is he having to wrestle with the angel? Now, Jacob sees after many years, after being cheated himself, knowing he was the one that cheated his brother, tricked his brother, after being cheated and tricked by his uncle, now he realizes that this spiritual blessing means a lot more to him than it used to. And that's why he's wrestling with the angel. He wants as much of God as he can possibly get. He didn't used to. But now he's come to the point where it means more to him now than it ever had before. So he wrestles with the angel. And the angel makes it tough for him. Now let me ask you a question. If the angel has the power to, to cause him to pull a muscle in his leg or whatever it was with the tendon that happened, strained a ligament, whoever, who knows, whatever it is. But to temporarily disable him, how much trouble has the angel really got with this guy? But folks, this is not a story about how God punished or damaged Jacob. And that's the way it works. You know, if you follow God, sometimes God will bring tragedy into your life. I mean, after all, he crippled Jacob for life. No, he didn't. The Bible never says that. It says it took physical effort on Jacob's part to become a prince with God. What's he doing? He's wrestling For the fulfillment of God's plan for Israel to come to pass. And that's what you and I do when we make supplication about God's plan for us. It's easy to say, I believe, I receive. Okay, Lord, if you want me to do something in ministry, if you want me to have miracles in ministry. Okay, I believe I receive them in Jesus' name. And go on about your business and say, it's God's problem, it's up to him or whatever. It's something else entirely to press through. 
John Knox was a famous preacher in Scotland. Well, he was a Scottish preacher, and he preached in Scotland and England back in the 1800s. And he said this. He prayed this. He said, give me England or I die. The Queen of England says she feared no enemy greater than she feared John Knox's prayers. Because she realized he was changing the country. Charles Finney had a man that went ahead of him to pray. Father Nash was his name. Father Nash would pray before a revival would begin. He'd get ahead of uh, Dr. Finney by a couple of weeks sometimes. And he would pray. And he said sometimes he'd catch himself praying things in prayer like this. He'd be praying to God and he'd say, God, you don't think we're not going to have a revival here, do you? Now, see, you can take that a couple of different ways. Some people hear that and say, oh, the audacity. Trying to force God to do something. How can you force God to do anything? How can anybody force God to do anything under any circumstances? I've found that to be impossible. Haven't you? You know as well as I do that we both tried to force him into things and it never worked. It just doesn't work. What is he doing? He knows that it's the will of God to have revival. He's pushing through the influence of the enemy, the wicked spirits in the heavenlies. He's pushing through those things so that the plan of God for revival can be accomplished. John Wesley said, it seems that God can do nothing for man except man ask him. Why? Because things happen here on the earth because man is his authority here on the earth, not God. I could tell you story after story after story. Let me, let me tell you one last one. About 15 years ago, we were having a prayer meeting. I'm minding my own business, praying about other things regarding the church. It was in the old building that we had over on Watney. I'm praying off over in one corner, and all of a sudden, I catch myself, and I realize that I'm praying. I, I, I just knew that I was praying about movies. My first thought was, God, you want me to make movies? That doesn't make sense. I don't know anything about making movies. Why would I do that? And so I just passed that off, and I thought, well, that can't be it. Maybe he's pray, having me pray for somebody about making a movie. Well, back then, there were no such thing as Christian movies. Passion of the Christ hadn't come out. Nobody's making Christian movies. But I'd pray about that. And every now and then I'd get in time of prayer and the, the, the movies had come back. Not every day. It wasn't something that stayed on me all the time. But it was frequent. And after a while I got to the place where I finally said, Well, okay, Lord, if I've got something to do with this, you let me know. But ugh, doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not the Hollywood type. Don't know anybody in Hollywood. Don't really want to know anybody in Hollywood. What is this about? But I kept praying and praying and praying. And this went on for about a year. Not quite a year, but just about a year. After that year, it left me. I never prayed about it again. I never was prompted or inspired by the Holy Ghost to pray anything about it. And then within the next couple of years, Christian movies started coming out. Well, there were a couple that didn't do anything. And so I thought, well, that's interesting. Kind of strange. But nevertheless, who knows what that's about. I just did what I could do to follow God as as best I knew how. And then the passion of the Christ came and I realized with the success of that thing, I realized that's one of the things that the Lord had me praying about. And he had me praying about it some years. I don't even know how long, but several years before it ever happened. Now look around, you got even atheists making Christian movies or Bible-based movies. Now they're not right, but even like this thing with Noah that came out this last year, I couldn't care less if the story's right. I thought it was funny. I went to see it. I thought it was kind of funny. I thought, here's what an unbeliever thinks when he reads the Bible on LSD. (laughs) 
But it's kind of like Paul said. Paul said, some preach Christ out of contention trying to make it harder for me, supposing to add to my bonds. He said, I'm just glad Christ is preached. I don't care if it's an unbeliever that makes a movie about the end of the world because of sin. I'm glad they made it. Let's get some people thinking about it that wouldn't be thinking about it otherwise. I saw a trailer just the other night on a movie uh, about Exodus. They're remaking the story of, of Moses and Ramses. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's a big budget movie. Look at all the other Christian movies that have come out over the last several years. God's Not Dead. Others as well. Others have a Christian theme, Christian based. Folks, that was not the case just 10 years ago. I realized that I was making supplication. Why? Because it was the will of God for it to happen. It's a, I don't know how God uses other people. I very rarely pray about things that are going on now. I found that God has me praying about things that happen down the road. And then I'll pray about them as long as I'm inspired to or impressed upon my, the, by the Holy Ghost to do so. And then it's over. And then sometime later, some years later in many cases, then I'll see something come along along the lines of what I was praying. But by then I'm already moved on to something else, praying about something else that hadn't happened yet. I'm praying about some things now that hadn't happened yet and may not happen for another 10 years. But I know they'll happen. And I'm making supplication about it. I'm not trying to give it to myself. I'm not trying to make it happen. But when I let the Holy Ghost lead me, he'll show me about things that are coming down the road so I can be prepared. Is this making any sense at all? Why is it necessary? Because there's a real devil out there. There are real things called spiritual forces. And those spiritual forces have to be pushed through. Those spiritual forces have to be pushed through if your loved ones are going to grow in God. Don't just leave it up to the individual. Well, if they're strong enough, they'll make it. Now, that's why God wanted us to make supplication for all saints. Praying with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. You can make supplication for yourself concerning the plan of God for you. Holy Ghost will lead you that way and the Holy Ghost will lead you to make supplication for other believers because they have rights. They have promises that have been made, eternal promises that have been made, that in many cases will never be realized because of the influence and the hindrance of the devil upon them, except somebody pray. I love to supplicate. I love it when the Holy Ghost gives me something to pray about along this line. I love it, I love it, I love it. And it's interesting to me, kind of ironic, but the thing that used to cause me the greatest difficulty and confusion now is one of my favorite kinds of praying. Because that kind of praying works. Every time. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the privilege to pray with all kinds of prayer and supplication in the spirit. We thank you, Lord, for directing us by the Holy Ghost. That we may pray not only for ourselves, for the plan of God to be realized in our lives. To bind ourselves to your plan and your purpose according to the rights that we have in Christ Jesus. And to push through the hindrance of the enemy. Even as in the Old Testament, Daniel fasted and prayed. And after 21 days, the angel came through with the answer. In the same way, Father, when we pray motivated and inspired by the Holy Spirit, our answer comes through the, the, the atmosphere of the enemy, the wicked spirits in the heavenlies, to bring us the information that we need and to cause us to walk in your perfect plan for our lives. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for giving me a little extra time.